And I was one of those kind of silly people who actually read the graduate catalog. <laughs> you know, not all sections, of course. I didn't look at chemistry or f- physics. You but, flipped through it. But the, the, yeah. the cultural stuff. And people, because I worked in a foreign office, people expected me to do, you know, maybe international affairs or maybe languages because I also uh, have a degree in philology and linguistics. But then I saw this definition, cultural geography. And it's like, it's everything I want to study. It's religion, it's languages, it's uh, politics. And oh my goodness. So I came back to my mentor and I said, Dr. Arnold, I chose cultural geography. And he said, okay, so you chose to be poor. (laughs) You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome to the Slavic Connection. Uh, today, I'm joined by Professor Bella Jordan from the UT Geography Department. And I'm also joined by Milena, an undergraduate student and host of a handful of other shows on the Slavic Connection. Uh, Professor Bella Jordan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Um, so my first question, I guess, would be you are a geographer. What does that mean to you? And what does that field sort of imply? Uh, geography is actually a very ancient discipline. Uh, it was actually, uh, the, the word itself, of course, means description of the earth. Uh, Gaia was the uh, goddess of the earth. And uh, so from Greeks, we got that uh, um, very long, venerable tradition of studying the earth. And it could be done uh, from the perspective of physical geography. It could be done from perspective of ethnic uh, geography, political, and so on. It's a very, very uh, broad field. Uh, when we try to define our discipline, we um, always say that it's like a, a very wide um, stream or rather river with a lot of uh, uh, different um, branches. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very in- inclusive. Sure. For instance, even um, the term cultural geography. It includes everything because culture could be everyday culture, political culture, religious culture, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So um, when we discuss between ourselves with my colleagues, we say, yeah, geography may be not very deep, like archaeology, for instance, or anthropology, where you really study your um, topic in depth and maybe for 20 years you go to the same archaeological mm-hmm. digs. We are... Um, discipline that we have to know a little bit about everything. And so jokingly, we call ourselves educated dilettantes. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Excellent. And so you're obviously from the eastern part of Russia. How did geography take you to Austin, Texas? Walk me through sort of your academic career. Right. Um I was working uh, for two years in a foreign office uh, in uh, the Republic of Sakha Yakutia. And uh, this was a time when uh, Yeltsin's government didn't have much um, vertical power mm-hmm. on which, of course, Putin insists. And so uh, there was a lot of freedom. Uh, and uh, one of the consequences of the Federal Treaty of 1992 was that Sakha um, Re- Republic of Yakutia was allowed to sell diamonds directly at the international uh, market. That meant that everyone came. And I worked with people from 20 countries. And of course, there were Americans. And uh, the government of Sahar invited this professor who was uh, associate dean of uh, graduate school here at business. It was called uh, 
Kazmitsky now it's I think McComb mm-hmm. School McComb. of Business, yeah. And so he, uh, they were invited to uh, to consult the government how to transition to market economy because you know business people know how to do that, and that's how I I got to know people from UT. Oh, really? And then they came back and I worked with them again and we just developed very friendly nice relationship. And they said, Bella, of course it's a lot of fun. You travel, you meet all all these people. But at one point, maybe you need to think about having more serious career. And they invited me actually as an exchange student here at UT. And for a year, I worked here as a research assistant. I had a mentor at business school, graduate office, and I was looking around. And I was one of those kind of silly people who actually read the graduate catalog. <laughs> you know, not all sections, of course. I didn't look at chemistry or f- physics, you but, it, but the, the, yeah. the cultural stuff. Mm. And people, because I worked in a foreign office, people expected me to do you know, maybe international affairs or maybe languages because I also uh, have a degree in philology and linguistics. But then I saw this definition, cultural geography. And it's like, it's everything I want to study. It's mm-hmm. religion, it's languages, it's uh, politics. And oh my goodness. So I came back to my mentor and I said, Dr. Arnold, I chose cultural geography. And he said, okay, so you chose to be poor. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my story in well, short. You're, you're in grad school anyway, so I guess that makes sense. Um, and so... You say that you're wide and thin with your knowledge. I know you're very much in depth about all these fields. <laughs> well, certainly, so in my own said, like in Siberian studies, mm-hmm. and by the way, just a few words about Siberian studies. Siberian studies is a very fascinating field because you could be a musicologist, ethnic musicologist. You could be ethnographer. What, so what does that mean, a musicologist? Is that studying the history of music? and or? Ethnic musicologists okay. are people who go to certain areas and they study this polit- particular, excuse me, uh, ethnic musical culture. Mm. For instance, going to Tuva and studying throat singing or something yeah. like that. And then you can be Siberianist and you could be historian. And you go and you try to find all kinds of old documents and stuff. And as a geographer, of course, it's easy to be a, Sib- a Siberianist. And of course, the book that Thierry and I uh, co-authored uh, was dedicated to Siberian village that actually I was born in called Jarhan. Mm. And when we went there in um, summer of 97, uh, it's, of course, a village of log cabins. And Thierry was like, oh, my goodness, I've never been to such exotic place. It's like 19th century. <laughs> and he belonged to the Pioneer America Society. And it's people who hunt for the old barns and old cabins. Mm-hmm. I said, if my fellows from the Pioneer America Society were here, they will all have coronaries. They will <laughs> all die from heart attacks. <laughs> because so many, you know, beautiful wooden structures. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So, um but there are kind of uh, very few of us. So we kind of know each other. I remember one of my grad students uh, once came to me and said, oh, Bella, you know, Dr. Pierce Vitebsky from Cambridge cites you. And I said, of course. And I cite him. We cite all each other because <laughs> there are like so few of us, right, you know, right. and we know each other. We met at mm-hmm. all the Siberian studies conferences and stuff. Small circles. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So how does uh, I know geography has evolved a lot with GIS and it's become more technical. Absolutely. I'm kind of more interested in sort of like the more cultural side. How does like geography intersect with like political theory? Because I know, I mean, if we look at the irredentist claims that happened in the post-Soviet um, geopolitical world, how much does map making kind of progress uh, global relations in your mind? Hmm. 
It's a very, very good question. You know, I actually, it reminds me that yesterday, uh, Nick in our geopol- mm-hmm. post-Soviet geopolitics seminar was showing me the border uh, between South Ossetia and the uh, main uh, mainland Georgia and how the Russians actually keep pushing it south. And he was using all these applications, of course, that are now available through GIS studies. Mm-hmm. And it's something that we never uh, could do. You know, for instance, for my doctoral dissertation, I actually went to the University of uh, Santa Barbara because they had uh, Landsat images that were taken by a spy satellite in America in 1972. And here is my village situated (laughs) maybe somewhere there between three lakes. And they had it, you know, because the air is so dry. And so, but you had to go to this length, you know. And actually, when we went there to the University of Santa Barbara, I actually had to pay money to get just one image, you wow. know. But now we have this new technology that allows us so much. Mm-hmm. And of course, map is, for geographers, is our major tool of exploration. Sure. We do make our own maps. We interpret them. We find mistakes. Uh, we, you know, in 1950s, there was a very influential article. It was called How to Lie with Statistics. And then just a few years later, uh, and one geographer wrote an article that was extremely influential in our circles. It was called How to Lie with Maps, because even using a color, uh, you can make the country look bigger or more mm-hmm. threatening. For instance, in the Soviet times, the Soviet Union was always this kind of bleeding bright red, mm-hmm. and it almost like looked like it's bleeding down on Eastern <laughs> Europe and um, in other countries, mm-hmm. you know. So, yeah, so um, MAP is um, a very valuable tool for us. Mm-hmm. Wow. And do you think, um, so in today's world, I'm supposed to be globalized world, borders don't matter, it's all markets. How do you see Russia playing into this world where Europe is like, guys, you don't have to worry about these things anymore, but Russia is becoming more secure in their borders. They're pulling these air dense claims in Georgia and Crimea. Does this surprise you or do you think this is kind of business as usual for how Russia's run their empire the last thousand years? Yeah, it, I think it's a, you put your finger on it. It's, 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 it's exactly that because the empire hasn't disappeared. It's just, it was a Russian empire mm-hmm. that was so extended that they actually had to pull off out from Alaska. As you know, they never right. successfully colonized it. Um, uh, and then the Soviets, of course, continued this because uh, that uh, Leninist Marxist principle of territoriality, uh, national uh, poli- nationality policies, like if you have an ethnicity and they have their homeland, then we give them a little autonomous okrug or autonomous ethnic republic status and this and that. And so, of course, they actually just retain the same ethnic territorial division of the empire that they inherited. So Mm -hmm. they didn't transform that. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, in the post-Soviet times, we are still dealing with this, what we call asymmetric federalism in Russia. And some people say there are advantages to that because people actually uh, are not homogenized. They're not assimilated. They can keep their cultures uh, and this and that. And on the other hand, there is obviously a hierarchy. You have your ethnic republics who have more clout like uh, Tatarstan, Chechnya, Sakhai, Kutsi because of its wealth. Uh, and so on. And then there are other uh, just oblasts that are absolutely ignored by the Kremlin and uh, get very little uh, money from the center. And so it's kind of people, not everyone is happy mm-hmm. in the right. Russian Federation because of that. Mm-hmm. And of course, Chechnya, because it's the price of peace, sure. gets uh, unproportional uh, amount of money, mm-hmm. you know, 
in terms of population or economic development, just because Kadyrov made a deal with Moscow that I will keep the border uh, safe, but mm-hmm. I need to be encouraged. Right. I, there, I need that, like incentive. I need to have an incentive. There's a power in being like a small, unstable country. There's a lot of power in being <laughs> just small, stay on the border, of course. And uh, if you look at the image of Grozny that was absolutely raised in the ninety. Uh, for there's nothing there. It was just the most mm-hmm. terrific uh, site. And then if you look now at the skyscrapers of Grozny, you feel like if I didn't tell my students it's not Dubai, it's Grozny. <laughs> oh, I could say it's Dubai and they would believe me because it's amazing. Undergrad students, surely. Undergrads, of course. And so, I mean, were geographers sort of predicting this return to this sort of map-obsessed Russia when Putin sort of was consolidating power? You know, reinvigorating the Chechnya war um, issues with Georgia. Was this something in your field that was talked about for a while or was it, you know, as surprising to you guys as it was to the Western world? I have to say uh, annexation and, uh, you know, of course, uh, as my husband used to say, to predict future is a fool's errand because uh, you're going to make huge mistakes and mm-hmm. then you'll look like a fool. So I usually try to stay away from <laughs> prognosis, but it doesn't mean we cannot discuss it because there are possible scenarios. There are always a negative, very bad scenario. There is maybe something more optimistic and then something in the middle. Uh, for instance, when I wrote about the future of this village uh, in the post-Soviet period, uh, I had this optimistic scenario. Pessimistic and then very, very unstable um, future. And so, um, and the same thing. And I have to say, I was in Crimea just a few years before its illegal annexation by Russia. And I I couldn't see anything. Mm -hmm. Of course, because I was not allowed some kind of uh, places, I guess, where there were some uh, military staff. Though I was in Sevastopol and I saw the Russian Navy and I saw only two Ukrainian um, ships there. It was Everyone was speaking Russian. And I asked one military doctor, I said, um, in a casual conversation, I said, so how do you identify yourself? And he said, no, we, конечно, русские. We, of course, are Russians. So that kind of was a sign, mm-hmm. you know. But then it's Sevastopol. So it's not the same as, for instance, Bakhchisarai, where you have Crimean Tatars who have an absolutely different identity, who did not participate in the referendum on March 16th, 2014, because they didn't want to leave Ukraine. Uh, and, of course, there are other people who live in industrialized part of Crimea uh, with different identities, with different interests. They actually had to leave Crimea because right. Russian, the Russian government gave them an ultimatum. You either get a Russian passport or Ukrainian. And people who spoke Ukrainian and lived there closer to Nikolaev and Kherson, they actually left. And I know several people, I talked to them because they said, we don't want to, you know, get a Russian passport. And so, mm-hmm. and then they had to leave. Right. And Milena, if you have any questions, feel free to jump in. Yeah, I don't know if I answer your question. No, that was an awesome. No, you you also ask about how geography and geopolitics. Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, without geographical understanding, you cannot actually do uh, geopolitical studies. Mm -hmm. It's just impossible, right? Because it's one of the major major Mm -hmm. factors that affects geopolitical decisions. Mm 
you know. Understanding uh, something like Transnistria and Abkhazia, you can't exactly, really understand that exactly, without knowing yeah. where they're located uh, and why. Absolutely. And if we uh, go all the way to the antiquity, we will understand that uh, the first war actually started because of a very geographical environmental circumstance, mm-hmm. because the uh, the city-states in Sumer fought over how much water they will use for irrigation. So the very first recorded war in human history started because of the environmental uh, circumstances. I bet the last war in human history will start the same way, too. Oh, yeah, boy. I can imagine. Yeah, um, I'm curious. Um, so you come from a very small ethnicity in, in East Siberia. And I'm wondering, coming from this background, is there anything like, are there are there any kind of worldviews that... Um, being from such a group helped you, I guess, sort of understand the world in a certain way? Um, it's, 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 it's a great question. You see, I grew up, uh, I, I was born in, in a village, but I grew up in a, a city. Mm-hmm. And uh, throughout the Soviet Union, the system was that you use the same textbooks as uh, in Moscow and throughout the Russian Federation. So, for instance, uh, when I went to graduate school to Moscow, I actually answered to professors who wrote those textbooks. Mm-hmm. And of course, the education was in Russian. I also spoke my mother tongue, which is a haiku. But I grew up in a very, very uh, kind of a homogenized society where mm-hmm. everyone, uh, and we could, because airfare was so um, uh, cheap, we would fly to Moscow on a regular basis. So we didn't feel like we were living in a very peripheral area. Of course, when it came to the quality of life, infrastructure, logistic, yes, we were very mm-hmm. peripheral. Uh, but in terms of thinking, I don't think we had parochial mentality because of that, because we had access to education, good health care. My mother was a doctor. My, my dad taught German at the university level. We had a lot of books. Mm-hmm. That's one thing that always flourished in Russia, publishing business. Even today, they're doing so good because people keep buying books despite all the technological devices, um, electronic devices, people uh, buy beautifully decorated albums of art, beautifully um, published books for their children. You know, every time I go to Moscow, actually, I buy ki- for Marina's kids or some other ki- genius kids, I buy beautiful children's books. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I don't think we had that kind of... It, on the contrary, I would say the Soviets wanted us to think globally, like uh, think about uh, what's going on in Nicaragua, Cuba, Angola. So we actually... my my. A brother, by the time he was five, because we had the world's map on, on, in his room, he knew every country and every capital. Wow. He was five. <laughs> so, yeah, so, it, so it, it's, it's a fantastic question, but because Lingua Franca was Russian, so mm-hmm. a lot of information for that. But, of course, uh, uh, growing up bilingual and by ethnic uh, helped me a lot, especially when I began to study English at the age of 11. And according to uh, Noam Chomsky, of course, <laughs> it's like the end of your critical uh, age. Mm-hmm. He says that you study music, math, and uh, languages at the age of four uh, till 11. So it's the best when you, your right. mind is like a sp- brain is like a sponge. And mm-hmm. that's when you kind of, it's very, very efficient uh, process. Very difficult question, but I don't know if I answered you, Milena. <laughs> You did certainly, and and just like to fall, to to continue this, I'm I'm really um, wondering about how people in East Siberia sort of um, tie up their identity, I guess, because certainly I know um, they're they're not Russian, of course, and they don't really identify with Russia. Is there any kind of like Pan Siberianism, or or do they identify more with like other East Asian countries? Another excellent question. 
amazing. I don't know if I have time to cover it, but mm-hmm. Siberians themselves in different places call themselves Sib- differently. Mm-hmm. For instance, people who live in my republic, they call themselves Siberiani, mm-hmm. the northerners. They don't call themselves Siberians. Sibiriki Siberians are those people who live like in southern Siberia, perhaps mm-hmm. Irkutsk, Oblast. And then you have the far eastern maritime province. They don't call themselves Siberia because they already live in the far east. Yeah. And those people who are looking at the Sea of Okhotsk and Pacific, they very much identify themselves as a part of the Pacific Rim. Mm-hmm. But those people who live in the hinterland, in the uh, more, the colder, the drier, uh, remote place in Siberia or in the north, they very often identify with their ethnic group or their place where mm-hmm. they live, the river. Uh, and that also depends on what they do, their way of life. If they're reindeer herders, it's a certain identity. Because it's not just a place, you are nomadic reindeer herders. So your universe is very different from the people who live to the south, who live in this, in the settlements, in the mm-hmm. villages. So, and it's, uh, Siberia is so vast. It's a whole universe in itself. But there is this kind of a idea of separateness of, uh, if you are to the east of the Urals, then the European part of Russia, we call it Matirik, the continent. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes we would say, oh, yeah, it's time to go to Matirik. So it's almost like we live mm-hmm. in an island and there is a continent of mm-hmm. European Russia. And these people could be ethnic mm-hmm. Russians. They could be old believers. They could be Buryats, uh, Tuvans, and so on and so forth. Okay. And then the one excellent uh, example that there could have been Siberian uh general identity. It was during the civil war of 1918, 1920. One, in Siberia, it lasted until 1924. Huh. In the European part, they already, Bolsheviks, the Red Army won. And we were still, you know, in Siberia, they were still fighting the communists and the white army because it's such huge uh, taiga area that you cannot like catch everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for instance, Pipilaev, uh, they call the Banda Pipilaev, the military groups who were hiding there in the forest until 24. Uh, but during that period, say, some Siberians said, you know, because St. Petersburg and Moscow created such mess in our country, maybe we should uh, secede and just become a separate country. There was this movement. In post-Civil War? Like, or is this During on? Civil War. Mm-hmm. Uh, For instance, uh, General Karnilov and others were talking about this. Let's just do a separate state of Siberia. Let them do communism, Bolshevism. We'll just live like we lived for centuries. So actually, there was Mm -hmm. such movement. Very few people, it's usually not discussed. It's a very known, uh, little known fact, but it was, uh, there was such a movement. Yes. Very, very interesting. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I think Russia would look a lot different if that succeeded. That would be. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Uh, And, you know, Siberians, very, very proud people. Uh, For instance, if you listen to Siberians, they would say, of course, we don't take prisoners. We're so strong. We're so tough. Uh, And especially they like this episode when the uh, German Nazi army was just 20 miles north of the Kremlin. Uh, They... uh, through the Siberian battalions into oh, yeah. 
into the fight and they sometimes say we won the battle mm-hmm. of Moscow <laughs> and they're like huge guys you know sure. they're strong and they're not afraid of cold because mm-hmm. uh, thanks for my country that December of 1941 was one of the coldest in history it was minus 40 Celsius and 42 and the Germans just didn't have any right. uh, I mean a lot of German soldiers died of exposure sure. to the uh, elements they you had 600,000 horses with them during that war I mean I can't on both sides. I mean, the Budioni and his uh, horses were, and his uh, men were fighting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes uh, horses against the tanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's unbelievable. So geography does matter. It's a stubborn sure. thing. You cannot change it. I mean, unless you totally do um, topocide or ecocide. Mm-hmm. But if, uh, you know, if you treat your environment nicely, then can actually can give you so much. And how do you see the field progressing? Is it, you think they're going to lean into the GIS much further, just become more technologically based? Or do you think the sort of cultural aspect of it with these sort of border skirmishes, especially India, Pakistan, we haven't spoken about that at all. These things becoming more often, it's going to go to its roots a little more. You know, thankfully, people appreciate uh, geography as an academic discipline more uh, uh, today because there were periods when people just, uh, I remember when they uh, closed the Department of, of uh, Geography and the Environment at Harvard University. Everyone said, oh, yeah, it's such a sub-discipline. If Harvard doesn't need it, why should we? Now at Harvard, they have Department of uh, Environment and Forestry. So they mm. kind of recreated it. Right. right. But um, obviously, people... And it, uh, sometimes, it, you see, we used to de- depend on the deans and the, uh, what they call them, uh, the guys who decide the fate of the university, uh, provost. Or, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. But nowadays, uh, people actually are more democratic. The times uh, have changed. And so we actually have more, um, the renome of geography is higher mm-hmm. nowadays. The reputation, the uh, the, the weight. And... Um, uh, when I talk to graduate students about uh, the archaeology of knowledge by Michel Foucault, uh, he doesn't list geography as hmm. a discipline, which is, of course, is kind of uh, uh, sad. Oh, right. Because we do exist. We uh, contribute a lot, I think, to the um, overall balanced knowledge of the world. And as an academic, you're required to sor- uh, s- uh, source Foucault as much as possible. So that must be... <laughs> I know there was a period when he was so popular. I would uh, go to the conference and especially graduate students, they will have to cite Foucault. Otherwise, like, I'm not uh, a researcher or something. This podcast is brought to you by Foucault. (laughs) Um, So do you have any other questions? I think handle a lot of the sort of the more larger field questions I was hoping to accomplish. Yeah. Identity questions. Um, Nothing was really popping to mind for me, but there were some things... We can talk about it off camera, I'm sure. So we usually like to end the podcast, though, asking for you to give us, you know, your last favorite book you read and last favorite movie you saw. It could be related to geography or nothing. Um, Just something to give the audience Mm -hmm. to look forward to. Uh, easy to answer because I was really blown away by this book that I read by uh, an author from Dagestan, and he discusses the war in the Caucasus in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's in the Russian language, so I don't know. I can recommend it to people who know <laughs> Russian, read Russian. But uh, 
for me, the novelty of the, his perspective was that he was from Dagestan, where Imar, Imam Shamil started his rebellion, his war against the Russian Empire. And it was so valuable to me because I usually read Russians, how they view it, or English language sources. And here there was a guy who actually gives it from Dagestan perspective, mm -hmm. from people of the North Caucasus. Just blew me away. And what like, was his opinion? I, mean, I don't think he had a positive view of Russia. I'm uh, sure. No, he actually. It was a very balanced analysis. Mm. Analysis. He emphasized uh, one of the great things was for me to understand how the Russian efforts at first were so unsuccessful and futile, because they tried to first to bribe the elite mm -hmm. of Dagestan and Chechnya, then they uh, would fight and try to get them to big battlefields and they will just evade and right. just go into the yeah. mountains, make a raid on Cossack settlement or military outposts and just go back to the mountains. And so finally, after several decades, one governor unsuccessful, another governor. And then finally there was this one uh, governor who said, okay, we will just build roads and make fields and do the infrastructure. And that worked. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. That's and there is a, a modern film where there is a guy who is, is of course, a Russian propaganda film with this Russian officer talking to Chechnya guerrilla fighter re rebel. And he says, uh, the guy says, you go to the north, you go to your own homeland, nothing for you to do. And this officer says, but you live in the cities that we built for you, <laughs> using the roads that we built for you, referring to that 19th century right. uh, model of colonization. Because mm -hmm. military conquest just did not happen in the Caucasus because people kept fighting. And so that war lasted from 1822 to 1863. Wow. Yeah. Gosh, it even lasted. So the, the, the Russian Empire already had... Uh, fought and lost the Crimean War mm -hmm. and the war in the Caucasus was still going on. Wow. Was it a very on and off kind of war or was it just continual conflict? Well, because there were never the uh, the uh, the Chechens and the Dagestani uh, people, they will not go into this big field like, you know, in a traditional military. Yeah. Uh, by the way, one of my biggest hobbies is military geography. Right. I absolutely love books on military geography. Uh, and... Um, they will never go and go like in a big field and fight with the Russian army because, of course, they would lose. They don't have uh, the same military technology. So they would just do something like raids. So their right. war tactic was so different mm -hmm. from the Russian military. Mm -hmm. And they just quite can quite figure out. Even today, I mean, in the uh, first Chechnya war, they could not understand why we cannot defeat the Chechens because the Russians are not people of the mountains. They're people of the forests and steppes. They are, feel very nice in the Arctic, but they just cannot fight in the mountains of North Caucasus or Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. That's not their terrain. That is not right. ecological, um, how to say, it's not their native soul. They they don't know. They don't know how to navigate that uh, terrain. Uh, that's why Osip yeah. Brostita was so successful during uh, mm -hmm. the Second World War, because in dynamic ranges was all this karst terrain. Germans yeah. just didn't know how to uh, fight him. And right. they would just parachute in there, fight, and then just disappear. And mm -hmm. they're like, what, <laughs> what happened? <laughs> very, very mount mountainous, rugged terrain. Yeah, and, and it's karst, so there are always the sinkholes, and it yeah. mm -hmm. keeps changing, you know? Right. And the Germans who, like, and Russians who used to fight in the East uh, European plane, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> they were like nothing there. And you just have two armies and they start killing each other. Uh. 
Yeah, I think um, you mentioned Tito, right? Yes, it was yeah. interesting. Yes, yes. My family is actually from Eastern, from sorry, Western Serbia, where um, I think Niš was like the first city liberated, something along those lines. But uh, I, I, yeah, I agree. The terrain is just crazy, like very mountainous, very, very rugged, and um, especially when you go into like southern southern Bosnia or Herzegovina, mm-hmm. and also Montenegro, just so many caverns. Yes. Um, yes. And it yeah. seems like the terrain often matches the politics of these big centralized powers <laughs> oh, trying yeah. to crush these little, you know, their villages. Yeah, they're and, separated. And look how there. compartmentalized Europe is. Historically, all kinds of factors, of course, worked. But look at that small peninsula, what we call Europe, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then peninsula of peninsulas. And then you have, it's not just by chance that all the uh, mini states are there, like right. San Marina in uh, Apennini, you know, and this and that. So if you look uh, how, for instance, a political map of Europe uh, was formed, you you have all kinds of factors, including technology, obviously, but also geography. Sure. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and usually I think the the more mountainous an area is, like the Caucasus, the more diversity you have and the more fragmentation you have, and it's just. Ethnic mosaic, as a linguistic mosaic. Yeah, usually it just looks like this uh, areas like the Balkans, the Caucasus seem to be what we call in geography the shadow zone, mm-hmm. where you have mm-hmm. really. Um, but even the, uh, take the Swiss Alps. Right. You know that the uh, Swiss uh, German Tuch has twenty three different dialects, yeah. and sometimes people from one village, across, you know, who live separated by the mountain range, do not understand each other mm-hmm. quite well. They understand, but it's not, it's what we call in linguistics, uh, they call uh, semi-communication mm-hmm. occurs. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So, so, yeah, so there is something to be said about, not that I want to be environmental determinism, because that paradigm <laughs> in geography has been discarded at the beginning of the 20th mm-hmm. century, but there are certain things that you cannot ignore, because, yes, we modify the environment, but also... And we use certain adaptive strategies, but environment also influences right. what kind of, there is a limit to adaptive strategies that we can choose from. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there's a reality you have to grapple with at some point. Yeah. Geography, you cannot argue with geography. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure thank to have you, you on the so show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure yeah. and it's an honor. Thank you. Don't argue with geography and I won't argue with the geographer either. <laughs> I would lose that. Thank so, you so much, Thank you Tom. very much, Melana. Thank you, Milena. The views, opinions, and ideas expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Thank you for listening to the Slavic Connection. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information and to subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel. As always, we invite listener feedback, so please send us your comments. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.